It was the shot heard around the world, or at least around the Commonwealth. Governor Charlie Baker announced that he will not run for a third term next year. What's more, his lieutenant governor, Karen Polito, won't either. The news has huge implications for the state's Republican Party. For now, it leaves Jeff Deal, a Trump-backed conservative, as the only GOP candidate for governor. But it also promises to scramble the Democratic primary, where three candidates are already in the race, but more seem likely to join, with all eyes now on Attorney General Maura Healey. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine. This week on the podcast, we're trying to understand the many ripple effects and implications of Charlie Baker's announcement. We're interested in who's thinking about running and who might have a leg up now. But Baker's announcement in many ways marks a more profound moment in Massachusetts politics, starting with questions about whether the state Republican Party has a future without him. His departure could also reshape the Democratic primary, where moderate Baker-type voters may now end up casting ballots. Here to help us make sense of it all are two smart voices on the state's political landscape, Jennifer Nassour, a former chair of the state Republican Party, and I should note a member of the board at Mass Inc., which is the public policy think tank that publishes Commonwealth. Welcome, Jen. Thank you very much for having me. And bringing a Democratic voice is Liam Kerr. He's the longtime state director of Democrats for Education Reform and an organizer of the Priorities for Progress PAC. Liam, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So, Jen, uh, let's start out with with what this means for your party. Uh, Where does Charlie Baker's departure leave things for the mass GOP? Well, I think, you know, Michael, it's a great question. I think that there are two different things at play here. So number one, we have the mass GOP apparatus, which is the state committee headed by uh, the person who I'd like to say, you know, unfortunately, the position is chair. However, the last thing that Jim Lyons is, is a leader of anything. Um, And so, you know, you have 81 people as part of the mass GOP apparatus and the town committees. On the other hand, what we do have is in Massachusetts, the you know very small percentage of of actual registered Republicans, which is hovering around nine percent, but we also have fifty seven percent unenrolled voters, and those unenrolled voters get to vote in Republican primaries, and so I think what's important to remember here is that we need to talk about democracy. We need to talk about a healthy, thriving two party system, and the current mass GOP apparatus is not going to provide that for the voters of Massachusetts. So I believe that's incumbent upon the rest of us to make sure that there are good quality candidates running um, and that the void for governor is being filled. And um, I just should note sort of from the outset that uh, Jim Lyons, the current chair of the party, uh, we did reach out to Jim to ask if he'd want to join on the conversation and uh, he declined. So um, uh, Liam, I mean, Charlie Baker was wildly popular. It would have been a favorite for, for re-election had he run. What does this all say to you? It certainly seems like good news on the surface for Democrats and their chances of regaining the governor's office. Yeah, well, certainly. I think anytime uh, you have someone who's 85% popular in the Democratic Party running against the Democratic nominee, uh, it is likely an uphill battle. And so, you know, macro level, great news for Democrats. I think one thing that Jen just mentioned, you know, the not just a plurality, a majority of Massachusetts voters are unenrolled. Um, And so there's a situation here where it's tempting to say we're basically a zero party state. Um, That is not true in part because of the power held by the Democratic State Convention. Uh, And so they hold the keys to who gets on the ballot. So I think, you know, barring a celebrity or a self-funder, 
the Democratic primary is now effectively uh, the general election in November. Um, and so for the actual state party apparatus, uh, the actual state party foot soldiers, um, it's a pretty good day. They can hold tremendous sway. Um, and at the same time, you have a lot of voters who are not ideological. You have a boom in turnout, so much driven by uh, uh, the ability to vote by mail. But we are going to see an entirely different electorate in September of 2022 than we saw in uh, in in September of 2018 for the last gubernatorial primary. Mm-hmm. And and um, Jen, I mean, so Liam's saying, you know, the Democratic primary is going to sort of effectively elect the governor, and I guess that that presumes that there's no big entry or nothing changes the 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 picture right now with Jeff Deal sort of standing alone and. Um, I think to most people's minds, kind of remarkably putting out a statement on the day Charlie Baker made his announcement in which he kind of doubled down on on reminding everybody that he uh, is the endorsed candidate of Donald Trump, who, uh, you know, was uh, was was defeated here by about a two to one margin. Uh, it didn't really seem like uh, Jeff Deal was sort of pivoting towards sort of a uh, an effort to sort of expand his base in any way. So. I mean, if if deal is it, it's deal or bust, then it seems like Liam's kind of right. Uh, it sounds like you are still sort of looking at this big swath of unenrolled voters who can vote in either primary. Uh, but to get them to come to the, Dem- the Republican primary, you need to, uh, I think, have have somebody other than Jeff Deal running in it. So are you you're still hoping that that, that that's not the kind of the end of the story for who's going to who's going to run? Thank God for mute buttons, um, because, you know, I'm hysterically laughing as, as you're asking that question, which is kind of multifaceted. Right. I don't even know where to start. Um, so number one, I think it's a total mistake for, um, for anyone to think that the Democrats have this thing locked up and that there should not, that there won't be any Republican that is going to be competitive. I think that that number one is a mistake. I think it's a mistake, not just in Massachusetts and anywhere, as we saw what happened in Virginia. Hey, don't take anything for granted. And the second you do, we walk in with it. I think everyone took um, this guy, Scott Brown, for granted. And then look what happened to Martha Coakley, not once, but twice. So um, I think, you know, we, we can prove that in recent history. Number one, number two, um, you know, Jeff Deal, Look, he lost a state Senate race. He lost a U.S. Senate race. The only thing the guy wanted to do was be the nominee in that U.S. Senate race. He was the nominee. We see what happened. All he wanted to do with this is to be the nominee for the Republican Party for governor. That's all he's angling to do. He knows he doesn't have any shot at actually becoming governor. And so what those of us who actually know what we're doing and know how to win elections What we're doing is we're looking for that candidate. We're talking to the people who said, if the governor or lieutenant governor don't run, this is what I'm going to do. I'll also point out that I think a failure of the Democratic Party is, hey, if Maura Healy really wanted to be in this race, why was she waiting for Charlie Baker to step aside if she really thought that she could win and and be, you know, be in this race and be competitive? So I have a problem with candidates that sit out on the opposition side and give deference to the sitting person you know, because they don't want to get their ass handed to them. So I kind of feel like more Healy, you know, she, she might think that she has this, but if I was Danielle Allen or Sonia Chang Diaz, I would really sit there and say the party, you better think of who you are going to nominate. So I think the democratic party is going to have a bigger problem than the Republican party has. 
On our side, we actually have a bunch of people who are super qualified, who, who would be amazing candidates for governor and lieutenant governor. And I think that we will see them come out. This news is brand new to us. No one knew what the governor was going to do. And quite honestly, other than J the Jim Lyons faction, which is about 30 people lined up behind Lyons and Deal, other than them, the rest of us really want someone who is appealing to that 57% plus the 9%. And so who, who, who are these uh, people waiting in the wings? Who do you think uh, we should be keeping our eye on? Isn't, isn't that the question everyone is asking and everyone wants to know? I'm not telling. I'm a former party chair, right? So I don't think that ever, I think if you were a party chair who actually loved your job, knew what you were doing and is a political operative, you never stop being a party chair. You're always looking. And so for the past couple of years, not knowing what the governor was going to do, but knowing it in history in Massachusetts, governors don't stay longer than eight years, then there are two terms, knowing that, and then COVID happens. I've been talking to candidates for potentially candidates and people for a long time, anticipating that this was coming up. Mm -hmm. I mean, I should say we've at least, you know, the, in the, in the great, we're in the great uh, I call it the great phase of the mentionings, right? So, you know, at least mentioned in the days since uh, Governor Baker's announcement, we've heard uh, the mayor of Taunton, Sean O'Connell, and then even more recently, former U.S. attorney Andrew Lelling. Uh, so at least those are concretely the names we've heard. I'm guessing Jen has some other some other interesting ones she's holding back, but uh, but we'll have to wait for to hear hear word on that. You were going to jump in there, Liam. What, what's your, I mean. I just want to see a reaction when I say Doug Flutie. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Could be a Hail Mary uh, for the party. Oh, you knew, you knew that was coming. I think um, you need 10 Our Fathers as well. Um, <laughs> you guys are funny. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and speaking of 10, I would say just one, I mean, a couple orienting statistics just on where the Republican Party is and um, you know, I think Democrats have been in danger of this in other states and in other places, certainly not in Massachusetts, partially because unenrolled voters are allowed to vote in the primary. Um, you know, fewer than 10% of Massachusetts voters are registered Republicans. And that's a shocking stat on the one hand, right? Fewer than a tenth. Um, it's not just the registration, though. When you look at people who affiliate, you know, Gallup does polling every year. When you look at who affiliates with the party, not just registers with the party, but tells a pollster they're affiliated with the party. Um, out of the 100 state parties in the country, the Massachusetts Republicans are 99th. Right? So only Wyoming Democrats uh, have fewer affiliated voters. Um, now, you can exploit that to your benefit. I think, you know, the Scott Brown um, comment was definitely, or the, the Scott Brown hypothesis and, and case um, obviously, 2010 was a surge Republican uh, year, and a little, a little, uh, a little bit different um, than the current uh, current climate we're in. Um, but it really is the Trumpiness of what happens when you do have such a small, uh, uh, small group of voters uh, and small group of activists. And so, again, this has happened to the Democratic Party and other places. Um, if turnout is very, very low, so in states where you know, how does AOC get elected? in a district that has 800,000 residents. Well, she gets elected with 18,000 votes because the Democratic primary is only uh, open to people who are registered Democrats. And it's held at a different time than the presidential and a different time than the Senate and a different time than the state elections. And so very, very, very low turnout. And that can happen. The Massachusetts Republican Party, again, you know, either 99th or 100th in the state, in the, in the country. 
um, it's hard to find a party that's in worse shape. And, you know, you can exploit that to a benefit if you're able to, like Charlie Baker did, use that as a vehicle to create a brand juxtaposed against what people don't like about the other brands. And effectively, what the polling showed, I think what everybody felt is that he's effectively an independent. Um, and you're basically having the cheat code in a two-party system to get as an independent into the general election. Um, Massachusetts is not like that. So in the 2016 primaries, Massachusetts had more Trump voters than any other state that voted until the race was effectively decided, right? So more than Alabama, more than Texas, more than Arkansas, more than I mean, Oklahoma. As, as a percentage of, as the, a percentage, of, yeah. of the primary uh, Trump vote. got 49% of the primary vote in Massachusetts. And so the smaller and smaller it gets, the Trumpier and Trumpier it gets. And so will it completely implode at one point? Maybe, but you know, I think the, the best statistic out there is that there are more Democratic state senators named Michael than there are Republican state senators. So can I just jump in here? Though I love your analysis, Liam, I will point a couple of things out. Number one, as Massachusetts is one of the last states, on one of not one of the last states, but you know, is on Super Tuesday, um, and a number of places had already voted and a number of the candidates had already come out before the presidential primary even hit Massachusetts. And there were pretty much no, no options remaining other than Donald Trump. That might be one of the reasons. So let's not let's not oversell this Trumpy thing. That's number one. Number two, 57 percent of our electorate are are independents. If they really believed in the Democratic priorities and the Democratic message, it's cool to be a Democrat in Massachusetts. Go be a Democrat. But they don't. They believe in having some choice. I also want to point out that over the past 25 years, Republicans, the majority of that time, have had the corner office. Why? Because Massachusetts voters are smart. They know that people need, that we need in Massachusetts to have a thriving democracy, that we need a balance of power. And the only way to get it is to make sure that there's a Republican in the corner office who is a moderate with common sense and a good fiscal acumen because the democratic legislature is not gonna change. Which brings me to my last point, which is why we need both ranked choice voting and we need term limits to change that over to make sure that there is a little bit more democracy going on. Well, I, I mean, I, I take the point about the, about the independence, but um, it also just seems to me that, back to the Hail Mary reference, that it's sort of what the Republicans seem to get over and over again, they kind of strike it lucky by having somebody. I mean, this is Charlie Baker. I feel like it's been Charlie Baker or bust. And I feel like when Baker's gone, you don't know who's there. I mean, we saw, uh, you know, back in 2002, it was Mitt Romney who kind of parachuted in. Uh, but absent sort of, a, a, you know, kind of these one-off leaders who can make an appeal, the it's, it's just sort of inarguable that the party has had a hard time building building anything outside of the governor's office, right? I mean, we've seen this, the numbers just shrink in the legislature. I completely disagree. I was chairman in 2010. During my tenure as chairman in 2010 and 2011, when I became chairman in 2009, um, I had the Democrats on their heels. Under my tenure in 2010, we won 17 seats in the legislature. We took out Democrats. Those right. are 17 new seats. So, so I just want to put everything in perspective right. because, you know, you guys can spin this however you want, but I was actually there. I also was able to win a U.S. Senate race. So I think that there's an opportunity here for Republicans 
when again, the Democrats say, oh, look at us, we're going to have our fancy little convention and we're going to get nominated and we're going to get elected and then the Republicans are going to come through. That's totally fine. I actually hope you guys do that. That gives my heart some joy for the week that has been a pretty otherwise lousy week. But also I want you to remember this. Mitt Romney was not an outsider. He did not parachute into Massachusetts. He left to go run the Olympics in Utah. He did run in Massachusetts for US Senate. He was in Massachusetts. He did have that experience. Charlie Baker didn't come out of nowhere. He was a locally elected official. He was in the cabinet of Bill Weld. So, you know, I, I just, I, you, this is all great and wonderful, but I'm gonna paint a different picture of Republican voters. It also is not the number of rep registered Republicans. It is those people who vote in those primaries. It is the people who vote for Republicans and have voted for Charlie Baker. Charlie Baker ran in 2010, he did it, he wasn't successful. He ran again in 14 and was successful and was able to enjoy for many years being the most popular governor in the country as a Republican in a blue state. Right, I mean, I certainly take the point, Jen, and I remember, I remember, I mean, it does, I don't wanna say it seems like a lifetime ago, but it, it was certainly another era in 2010 when we had Scott Brown kind of riding high and winning that, and as you say, some of the gains in the legislature, I guess if you if you look just sort of at the sort of decades since then, I think it's certainly true that it's been a it's been not a not a, a apart from the governor's office, it's been kind of a, a game of attrition and at the level of the legislature and in other offices. It's failure yeah. of leadership. It's a failure of, of who has been the party chair. I mean, if you're only focused, if you're a party chair who's only been focused on the corner office and all the bells and whistles and jewels and money that comes along with it, you're not mm -hmm. paying attention to the legislative seats. If you're a party chair who wants to fight some ideological warfare, you're not paying attention to those seats. Right. And I think that, that that could change. It's The messaging is terrible, um, but I don't think that that is any reflection upon all of the voters in Massachusetts who want some balance and don't want some progressive leftist agenda. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's... You want to say something, Liam? Go ahead, jump in. Well, just so I do think it's, um, you know, in this kind of spirit of democracy and the importance of having kind of counterweights and frankly, just a way for the public to mediate major public policy decisions, right? If there's only one party in a state and it's not clear what the factions are within that party, it's not clear what the debate is, we just are in this very muddled place where it's hard for the public to act on things. I don't think anyone believes that, um, you know, leaving aside, you know, leaders of any particular branch um, that were totally, you know, at our at, at peak performance as a state, right? And addressing some of our biggest challenges. Um, you know, it's kind of one way to think of it is other than having terrible traffic on affordable housing, yada, 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 we're doing fine, right? Um, there's a lot of decisions that need to be mediated and you can't do it without um, kind of clear ways to have those debates. And so I think it is really important to be clear out about this debate and to think about it in the context of the decision that Baker had to make. So in that spirit, I do want to push back on this concept of, of what where the Republican Party has been over the last 20 years, um, starting with just that 2016 presidential primary story. I mean, Massachusetts is basically dead in the middle. You know, Ted Cruz didn't drop out until May 4th, more than two months after the Massachusetts primary. Trump got 49.5%. John Kasich got 18%. Uh, Kasich was in, Rubio was in, Cruz was in, Cruz was in for two more months. This is who the Massachusetts Republican electorate is. 
22% of Massachusetts Republicans believe Biden won the election. The state party is a reflection of the voters. And I think emotionally, that's got to be incredibly, uh, you know, I've uh, spoken to a lot of never Trump people nationally. I have so much respect. Uh, it makes me proud to be an American to see how both emotionally and strategically they've had to grapple with people they thought were in it for the right reasons that they thought were kind of constitutional conservatives to go that route. I think it's incredibly complex and challenging. Um, and so I have a lot of empathy for, you know, uh, principled Republicans who are having to go through this. But the reality is in the last 20 years, since 2002, we have had, so 18 years, or it'll be 20 this year, there's been 76 state house or, or national uh, federal house of representatives elections. Democrats are 76 for 76. We've had whatever it is, six or seven U.S. Senate elections held in November. Republicans have won zero. We've had 16 offices other than governor up for election, the four statewide other offices, four different times. Republicans are 0 for 16. And so unless your name's Charlie Baker or one special election in 18 years, there is effectively no Republican Party in Massachusetts. And it's only headed in one direction. Party registration is only headed in one direction. The conspiracy theorists are only headed in one direction. And my final point here, luckily for principled people of all ideologies, there are easier pathways to build strength politically um, outside of party structures. I think on the left, you see what groups like Our Revolution and Justice Democrats do. On the right, obviously, Trump and other groups. And so there are opportunities for principal people to leave the Republican Party and form their own identity and faction that can help us make some of these decisions as a state about where we need to go. And I think our democracy would be much healthier uh, for it. So, Jen, I mean, where will the party go? I mean, you mentioned that we've had a failure of leadership and only a focus on the corner office. I mean, to sort of put not too fine a point on it, even in the current chairman, he's not even really been that focused on the corner office, certainly not with Governor Baker. He seemed to, you know, basically his message was good riddance when he announced uh, that he was leaving. So I, I guess, you know, where do we go from here? How do you, do we sort of, you would say, some people say you have to hit rock bottom and then you kind of regroup. I mean, we seem to be, the party seems to be at or close to rock bottom, but is there a pathway for sort of regrouping that you see emerging? Yeah, totally. Because Jim Lyons is an embarrassment. Jim Lyons is not, as I started off saying, he is, I can't even call him the chairman because the chairman would suggest that he is actually leading. He is not leading. He is a loser. And so that's exactly what he's doing. He didn't care about the corner office so much. Well, you know, if he didn't care about the corner office, why is he focused on Jeff Deal? In addition to that, Massachusetts just lost Brad Hill, an amazing uh, state representative who has held the seat for over three decades. And that seat has been in Republican control for about 50 years. And so all of a sudden now, Jim Lyons is going to build the party from the ground up. During the time of this special election going on, Jim Lyons did not raise a single dollar to give to the person who is running, Bob Snow, nor did he send out a single email in support asking for anyone to go to help to door knock or to make phone calls. So I don't know what Jim Lyons is doing. It is ideological warfare. So, you know, the only thing I agree with on Liam is that what is coming out of the 
mass GOP apparatus, which had to move out of Boston and move to Woburn, is a very Trumpy message. And all he cares about is talking about Trump. And all he cares about is talking about ideology. But please remember that there are a lot of other Republicans in Massachusetts and those unenrolled voters who believe in Republican policies and would like to see the traditional fiscal conservatism thrive in the state. And so I, I do believe that there is an opportunity to take back the party and to get rid of Lyons. There are four more state committee meetings until his next election, at which time I have no doubt he will no longer be the chair of the party. Thank God, I can't wait. It's one more terrible year. Um, and in the meantime, there are organizations like mine, the Pocketbook Project, where we support women who are running for office and we recruit them. We don't recruit them, we train them, we educate them, we get them up and running. And they have been coming to us and saying, I wanna start from the bottom and go up, which I think is great. And it's women like myself that are more moderate conservatives, fiscal conservatives. And so, I think it's going to take outside groups other than the mass GOP. And there are a ton of us around. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess one one question, though, given the degree to which the kind of party's uh, fortunes have been all kind of wrapped up in holding the governorship. I mean, if if a strong candidate doesn't emerge, if Jeff Deal gets the nomination, is that uh, is that a real disaster then uh, looming for the party? Yeah, then I hope the mass GOP absolutely sinks. I mean, then the best thing could be for it to totally blow up, it crash like the Titanic, um, and go down, and you know, go down, and then it gives an opportunity for the Phoenix to rise again, where it is going to be the Republican Party of Massachusetts, not the Republican Party of Arkansas. And and Liam, just uh, we're we're kind of getting low on time, but one thing I wanted to just get your take on is sort of how the sort of events of the last week or so and what we what we what we may be seeing going forward uh, have implications for the Democratic Party and for the kind of orientation of the of the primary for governor of who who will have some strength. And, uh, you know, there's this sense, again, that these Baker voters, I mean, they're Baker. I don't know if we call them Baker Democrats or independent Baker voters, but, um, you know, they may be much more in play. And uh, it just seems that there's some implications there. Can you just talk a little bit about what that means? And, you know, we should say that you're you're part of a strand within the Democratic Party that has been trying to focus the party more on reaching out to kind of, you know, voters in the middle, independent voters and sort of pushing back on on what's been kind of a this kind of lurch to the left that we've seen certainly nationally and, and to some degree here in Massachusetts. Yeah, and so we've been um, doing research into this since the morning after the 2018 election. And so we did a, a poll the morning after the 2018 election in which um, there were basically three groups of voters, slightly more than a million voters voted for Warren and Baker, around a million voted straight Republican, and then a little less than a million, actually the smallest of the three groups voted straight ticket Democrat. Um, and so you had this pretty neat third, 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 and we did a, a deep dive on those Warren Baker voters. Um, what we didn't know at the time- Which is just, I gotta just stop and say, you know, again, to people who who sort of think they've kind of typecast Massachusetts voters, the fact that there's a million people that voted for Charlie Baker and Elizabeth Warren, it, it you know, it, it it's just pretty remarkable and, and, and telling in a way. It, it absolutely is. And when we now step into this new world where um, there are some differences, <laughs> right? 
obviously post Baker is one of them. A major one is the size of the primary electorate. So we're shifting from a world in which, you know, there's fewer than 800,000 voters in the democratic primary, um, sometimes as few as you know, 500,000 voters uh, to a place where 1.4 million people voted in the 2020 U.S. Senate election. That's 54% higher than the second highest non-presidential primary since 1990. And it's that completely changes who is electing the next Democratic nominee. Um, you know, about 40% of voters are independents um, in a regular Democratic primary. That's higher in a regular presidential primary. In the 2020 Senate race, it was 48%. So we see a lot of these trends going in one direction it actually changes the makeup of, of the people um, that are actually voting. The research we did in, in 2018 to look into that middle million in particular, the Warren Baker voters, um, one big thing we found is that people hold democratic values but don't trust Democrats to get results. And so people who you know, said, I want a strong liberal voice in DC, Elizabeth Warren will fight for me, Charlie Baker's an effective manager. Um, and you see this big gap in the rating that people give uh, and the believability that they have of the connection between values and results. Um, and so, you know, I think the primary basically starts today uh, or started yesterday. Um, you know, no, I don't think that there's a lot of uh, name, name recognition. The contours of the race are not clear. The candidates are not clear. Um, but of those 1.5 million voters, we, we did polling in the, the just before the 2020 presidential um, I mean, sorry, the 2020 U.S. Senate primary in August. And we found 62% of Democratic primary voters would have voted for Baker in a Democratic primary had he switched for governor. Um, and so you have two thirds almost, you know, it's 85% view him favorably and 62% would vote for him over a field that was Maura Healy, Ayanna Presley, Marty Walsh, and Deb Goldberg. Um, and so, yes, catering to people um, and framing a democratic message in a way where people are animated by those values, but then they also trust that you will deliver the results that go along with them. And whoever can unlock that door uh, will be in the corner office until 2026. I, I love it. I'm just going to jump in here. I, I, you know, Liam, thank you for doing that. And I think that that is wonderful, uh, you know, but I mean, you might be as hopeful on the left as I am on the right, if that's even possible, because it just looks like the Democrats are going, you know, falling all over themselves to go left and left and left and left. So thank you for what you're doing. I think you and I are trying to hold up democracy and, you know, you and I are the atlases of the of politics in Massachusetts. Well, on that high-minded high note, uh, I think we'll we'll leave the conversation. There's going to be a ton more to talk about in the in the months ahead, including when Jen comes back on and, and spills the beans on who the big looming uh, uh, figures uh, in the Republican uh, Party waiting in the wings are. But I just want to uh, thank you both for a great conversation, Jen Nasur, former chair of the Mass uh, Republican Party, and uh, Liam Kerr from uh, Democrats for Education Reform and uh, Priorities for Progress. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Jen. And this has been another episode of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time.